Hello, and welcome to another episode of Headlight in the Fog, the UVitis podcast. We're your hosts, Akshay Thomas and Laura Kapleen. Today, we're joined by Dr. James Rosenbaum and Dr. Kevin Winthrop. Uh, Dr. Rosenbaum is professor of ophthalmology, medicine, and cell biology, chair of division of arthritis and rheumatic diseases, and the Edward E. Rosenbaum Professor of Inflammation Research at Oregon Health and Science University. He's additionally chair emeritus of the Legacy Devers Eye Institute. Dr. Winthrop is professor of infectious diseases, ophthalmology, public health, and preventative medicine, as well as the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Studies, Oregon Health and Science University. Jim and Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. It's an honor to team with Kevin. Nice to be here with you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Today, we are going to be discussing immunosuppression in the era of COVID-19. We like to start off with the question of how do you both typically counsel patients about infection risk as well as immunosuppressive therapies? Has this changed in the setting of the COVID-19 pandemic and as our understanding of COVID-19 has evolved? I love to counsel patients on infectious disease risk. <laughs> so does Jim. Um, lucky I, I get many nice referrals from Jim and his colleagues here at OHSU as, as well as elsewhere. Um, this has been uh, an ever-changing and, and persistent topic, I guess, for you know a couple decades now, ever since we started coming out with targeted therapies. And I, I guess even before then, it was an issue with non-targeted therapies, particularly prednisone. Uh, continues to be an issue with prednisone, but then obviously the various uh, target therapies of different um, MLAs. You know, it, it's one that's taken on, I guess, new importance in the COVID era because, of course, there's a new infection threatening the world, and everyone wants to know, you know, how they should handle their immunosuppression. So I guess we'll we'll get to that uh, later in the podcast. So I'll save my comments for that. But but I, I think in general, I mean, my my counsel has to do with you know risk mitigation and and all these medicines that are approved for all the diseases you you guys treat. I mean, they they have, for the most part, incredible efficacy, and they've helped people in so many ways and uh, live normal lives in many cases. And just the quality of life improvements are, are vast, and I'm sure you guys can attest to them. Um, on the other side of that coin, on the safety side, where, where I sit, of course, uh, you know, my goal is to try to risk mitigate and how, how do we minimize the, the problems or prevent them so that people can benefit from from these medications. And certainly, you know, patient selection is important and sometimes steering a rheumatologist or another treating physician away from certain drugs based on that, that person's comorbidities or risk factors for certain infections or other complications is important. Uh, and then, of course, we're talking about, uh, you know, minimizing concomitant uh, immunosuppressives, and we're talking about vaccinations uh, oftentimes, and then screening, you know, screening for, for various infections. So th- those are kind of the, the general constructs that, you know, I, I guess I would go through with a referring physician or a, a patient when trying to alleviate their concern about potential infection. So Jim, I know you have a spiel when you are starting a patient on immunosuppression. How has that changed for you in the COVID era? Well, Every medical decision obviously involves a balancing of risk versus benefit. And I think the risks have increased when we're in a pandemic situation. So the discussion needs to include how that medication is going to impact susceptibility or severity of COVID infection. We need to strike a balance as physicians because we need to share confidence, give confidence, reassurance, 
And at the same time, COVID has created even more uncertainties than we usually deal with. So I think that's our, our delicate tightrope is to walk between those two, uh, giving information, but not overstating what we know. We're investing too much about what we don't know, but still being honest. So I think that brings us to some of our questions about what the evidence is out that we have available um, looking at are there differences in risk for COVID-19 infection in patients that are on immunosuppression compared with the general population? And do we know are there any differences in outcomes in between the immunosuppressed patients who become affected in the general population? And how can we then incorporate that into some of our counseling? Well, it's a multi-part question. I think as Kevin hinted earlier, corticosteroids are bad. And <laughs> <laughs> That's there's a huge irony, I think, because most practitioners feel most confident with corticosteroids. You know, I'll just give them some prednisone while I'm waiting to decide, blah, 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 blah. But usually prednisone, at least in the higher doses, is what correlates most with the risk of infection. And COVID is especially perplexing because it's clear that there are at least two phases. And so the effect of immunosuppression when you're not infected and might get susceptible is very different from the late stage effect where immunosuppression may be life-saving. I totally agree with that. And, you know, I, I guess a lot of this has to do with specific types of infections. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, specific MOAs or mechanisms of action. You know, you take those things into account when you're when you're really trying to minimize risk. So there's some general things like vaccination, which kind of goes across all patients uh, who are immunosuppressed of, of all causes. But you might handle their vaccinations differently depending on a lot of those factors, you know, what disease they have, what drugs they're on, how old they are, things like that. And a lot of it ends up being very patient specific. So I guess the answer to your questions in my mind were yes and yes. And it's, uh, it's a long story. I think those were the three questions and the three answers. <laughs> But, but yeah, they, there is evidence that patients are at higher risk for some things. Uh, and there is evidence suggests they don't do as well as other patients, but not across the board. There's certain infections where they may do just the same or perhaps even better, depending on what the infection is and, you know, what drugs are on and whatnot. So it really is very, I guess, situation uh, specific. So, Laura, let, let's pretend you had the ideal database that you had a registry and everyone in the United States was in that registry. And so you could capture whether they got COVID, how severe the COVID was and what medicines they're on. And you could tease it out and find out what the independent variables are. But you still wouldn't know how did they change their behavior because they were on prednisone? How did they change their behavior because they had rheumatoid arthritis or sarcoid associated uveitis? It, it's it's so complicated and it's a Hawthorne-like effect where once you start to study it, you change the very outcome that you're trying to study. Right. I think it's a really good point. I, and I think some of the data that we have available always points to the how does the underlying disease for which the patient was on the immunosuppressive medication affect you know, their susceptibility and their outcomes with COVID. So it's very hard to kind of tease apart a lot of, these, a lot of this data. Um, if, if you guys agree with that. Yeah, and I think we have some answers. I, th I think it's bad to have respiratory disease. It's bad to be overweight. It's bad to be old. It's bad to be a man. 
And Kevin can probably add to that list. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it seems like I fit at least the last several criteria you just mentioned, which is unfair. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I would just say that as an epidemiologist and someone who does a lot of observational uh, database, real world, quote unquote, studies, you know, I, you know, you, you can never be sure uh, of these factors Jim mentioned. You, you do everything you can to control for them or adjust for them in your modeling and whatnot. But you can never, in the end, really, really be sure you've adjusted away all the confounding by indication or channeling bias and things like that. And so um, in the end, I mean, the, the, the registry work that's been done around COVID, I think, has been brilliant. I mean, it's exactly what uh, needed to happen and, and uh, really talented and important people got together and got the funding with uh, collaboration of industry and government to, you know, do the best they could to try to sort out what was going on with people. And um, so it's really been brilliant. But, but that being said, at the end of the day, you still, you still don't know um, whether, whether drug X really is associated with, uh, well, you know, it's associated, but you don't know that there's any causality. I mean, you can only guess. So there's certainly data that Jim was alluding to showing that, that people on certain types of therapies were uh, more likely to be social avoidant, more likely to be wearing a mask, probably less likely to, to get infected in the first place because of these factors. So, you know, and how that ends up, uh, those are things that you can't control for in a multivariate analysis necessarily. So, so at the end of the day, you're, you're left with what you, it is, as my wife says, it is what it is, Kev. <laughs> I hate that when she says that. <laughs> Kevin, I'd like to circle back to one thing Jim had brought up, which is this fact that we all kind of agree, steroids are bad, probably more steroids might be more bad, um, and how that might affect different phases as somebody either becomes at risk for getting COVID versus maybe already has developed an infection and is progressing through the stages of infection and, and kind of the different roles glucocorticoids might play in those different phases of disease. I mean, it's a great question. It's one that we, you know, end up trying to answer with kind of each, each infection, but COVID specifically, obviously corticosteroids have been shown um, in observational fact fashion, uh, you know, of certain dose uh, basically above 10 milligrams per day chronically, you know, to be associated with worse outcomes. Now, how much of that is a steroid? How much of it is, you know, these uh, factors I was alluding to, you know, in terms of, you know, disease activity and other, other things you can't necessarily control for in a multivariate analysis, uh, channeling bias and whatnot. But I mean, look, it, it's one of those things, you know, high dose steroids is pretty much associated with badness from uh, every single other organism I can think of, uh, as well as non-organisms. So it, it, it just, I guess it makes sense. It has face validity. Obviously, in the treatment arena, in terms of treating COVID, steroids, at least when instituted at, you know, at the right time during that journey or that trip, so to speak, uh, seem to be beneficial really proven, you know, in, in randomized controlled trials. So, so we, we feel like that's causality and that we've proven that, but, you know, if you look at that data closely, it's, it's, you know, it, it took a long time to kind of get that picture uh, more clear. And, and it, I think it's certainly clear that if you start steroids too late during COVID, it doesn't help you. And if you start them too early, it probably hurts you. So, you know, there is a sweet spot with all these things. I mean, I'll just say too, I mean, other infections, think about tuberculosis, think about, well, particularly CNS tuberculosis, you know, we often use steroids or pericardial disease. I mean, when when we're trying to spare certain structures from 
uh, damage wrought by inflammation, uh, steroids are often used in the context of treating an, uh, an infection. And that's, you know, sometimes fungal infections, et cetera. So um, steroids have, have their place sometimes in the, the management of certain infections, uh, usually in the context of other you know, antimicrobial therapies. In, in COVID, of course, we haven't really had an antiviral except for remdesivir. And it's kind of like hitting a, a bloop single, really. I mean, it helps, but it doesn't help a, help a ton. So uh, obviously, there's a lot more work to do in terms of um, improving our, our therapeutic approach from an antiviral standpoint. But steroids definitely have shown to be beneficial when, when used at the right time. So how about have any of the other classes of medications that we're using as UVI specialists really stood out? I know for a while we were hearing a lot about interleukin-6 antagonists as potential therapeutics. And I know I think for a while, at least I had thought that rituximab was something that we were a little more worried about might be having worse outcomes. Has any of that kind of played out even in the registries in your own personal experience? I think there's no doubt that rituximab is is associated. It's not just rituximab, but all B-cell depletion agents uh, in the commercial space, whether it be for MS or, uh, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or uh, oncology reasons. I mean, wh- they've all been associated with worse outcomes with COVID. Uh, I mean, that's been, um, you know, the more often you find something, I guess, the more you believe it. It also makes sense, right? Uh, and I think there's also the issue with vaccine response, as we've seen with many other vaccines and now we're seeing with COVID. So there's a lot to think about with with B-cell depletion agents as being a risk, I think. The the other part of your question, which I've now completely forgot, what was it? It was... <laughs> Interleukin-6 antagonists. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was involved with a number of the IL-6 blocker studies for COVID. Um, and, you know, after about six of them, I guess I decided it didn't work because they're all negative. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess if you fail, you just keep 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 trying. And, you know, eventually the UK built like the biggest study on the planet. I think that about 4,000 in one arm and 2,500 in the other. But, um, you know, I guess one of the, the, the main reason none of the IL-6 studies were reaching their primary endpoint was in some cases our primary endpoint wasn't the right uh, thing. And in some cases we weren't enrolling the right types of people or at the right time. But certainly it was, it was a statistical power issue because, I mean, IL-6 blockade seems to it, it does seem to decrease mortality in a certain uh, subset of people with COVID, but it took a absolutely gargantuan study uh, to have the statistical power to show, you know, that a few percent in in, in mortality reduction was was statistically significant. So, um, I think it, I do think it works when employed in the right people. Probably more so in the context of dexamethasone. Uh, or perhaps other corticosteroids. That that's where we are with IL six blockade. And the last uh, group of therapies would be the jack inhibitors. I mean, to to be honest, the the best data we have is for baricitinib in terms of mortality reduction. I don't know of another agent that's been shown to reduce mortality uh, to that same extent. Um, and that was being used in combination largely with dexamethasone. It's also uh, there was an effect when it wasn't used with dexamethasone, but the RCT where it was used basically on a backbone of uh, dexamethasone in most patients, I think about 77% or 80% of them were on dex. There was, I forget, five or six point mortality reduction. It was statistically significant. It looked very impressive. So, so I, you know, the, the standard of care for, for COVID in this country is if you're in the hospital, you need oxygen support, uh, basically that level and beyond, you're going to get dexamethasone and remdesivir and then uh, you know, if you uh, go beyond that, at some point you might get uh, baricitinib or, or tocilizumab. 
and that's kind of how we handle it. I mean, the, the other issue is monoclonal antibodies, which until very recently had not been shown to be beneficial in the inpatient space. Now there's, again, the recovery guys in the UK built a huge study, of, again, of thousands of people to show that there is a tiny benefit for people who, are, who, who do not have their own antibody response at the time uh, of infection. So those types of inpatients will, will likely benefit, which is largely uh, you know, consistent with what we've seen with all the outpatient data around monoclonal antibodies. If, if you're early in your infection and you haven't mounted your own response, then you will benefit from the antibodies, uh, certainly. And um, I think they're actually a very underutilized, very important tool that we have to, to prevent badness in uh, particularly high-risk individuals who get COVID. But it, it, once they're in the hospital, by and large, it's too late for most people to use them. Right. You know, with tocilizumab, I would pick up the New England Journal, read one study and say it didn't work. And then you'd pick up the next issue and it'd say it would it did work. Uh, and as Kevin said, it took lots and lots and lots of data to combine to say that it does work. And I think it actually just today, which is July 12th, when we're recording this, there was uh, an approval of an emergency use authorization for tocilizumab, the IL-6 receptor antagonist. And in, in terms of baricitinib or dexamethasone or corticosteroids, you know, the first disease for which TNF inhibition was trialed was sepsis. And it should have been a slam dunk. I mean, if you give enough TNF to an animal, it acts like it's septic. And TNF does a lot of the things that you associate with sepsis and it's too much. And so blocking TNF was surely going to work. And when it didn't, I would have said the same thing about baricitinib. You know, that's much, much too dangerous, despite the, the putative cytokine storm to give to anyone with an active infection. But it, as Kevin said, we give corticosteroids when you've got CNS tuberculosis, that there are circumstances where you've got an infection and your immune system is not your best buddy. It's overreacting. Jim, kind of circling back to uveitis for a second. So have there been any changes to your uveitis practice patterns just in the setting of this pandemic? Sure. COVID is a topic of discussion for virtually every patient who comes through the door. And it's usually now about the vaccine and whether they've been vaccinated and how to time the vaccine and what medicines are going to influence the outcome of the vaccine. And before it was the unknown risk of how COVID was going to affect the uveitis, uh, whether they were at greater risk because they were on immunosuppression. So it, it's it's obviously a topic of discussion. And, and of course, it also hinders our ability to touch patients, to relate to patients. It sets up an obstacle that was paramount for the first four weeks, roughly, of the pandemic when we couldn't even go to the office. And gradually, things have, have loosened up. But COVID is still the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. Have you found patients, Jim, were more likely to elect for local therapeutic options more recently? Or have people still been fairly open to having the immunosuppression discussion in your in your clinic? I, I don't it's it's a reasonable question, but I, I don't think that I've been aware of people opting specifically for local therapy. Maybe a couple who say, yeah, you know, give me those drops, even the local injections, uh, because I don't want to be immunosuppressed. But it, it's not, 
it's a tiny minority, at least in my practice. I guess if the pandemic has, has surprised me in one way, it's that we haven't had catastrophes with rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or sarcoidosis or patients who are immunosuppressed. I mean, I, I think we all expected much worse. And for whatever reason, we've, we've come out okay. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And I'm, my personal opinion is I, I think, A, the, the rheumatology community should be highly commended. I think, you know, Jim, you, you and your colleagues, you guys have been totally on top of this from the get-go and very proactive, as have other groups of doctors. But but I, I think it's because your, your patients are at high risk for uh, infections in general, and you're used to doing this, you know. And I think, too, that the patients themselves have been well-educated by physicians and other sources to understand this and and to be avoidant. I think a lot of folks in your clinics were taking, you know, they're they're similar to the folks I see. You know, I see a lot of of your patients, but also like chronic lung patients. I mean, they were avoiding potential infection you know, taking quite extreme measures. So I, I do think a lot of it has to do with, with you guys, but also just the patients too, and that, that collaboration of just being avoided. You know, I, I think clearly one of the greatest privileges of being a physician is the opportunity to meet such a diverse array of, of people. But it still is a very selective group of people. I mean, we're at tertiary referral centers, and there are lots of people who never make it to a tertiary referral center and some people who never make it to a primary care specialist. So yeah. we, we draw assumptions, we reach conclusions based on our own personal experience, but our personal experience is not statistically significant. So, Kevin, kind of moving on, could you just give us a brief overview of the vaccines that are available for use in the United States? We basically have three, as you know, the the Pfizer and then the Moderna, which are the two mRNA constructs. And then we have the the Janssen or Johnson & Johnson antiviral vaccine. The, The other two that are out there but haven't made it yet are the Nevavax protein conjugate vaccine, which has shown really high efficacy but hasn't been approved yet. They, they, it's hard to make. I think they're having manufacturing issues. I think that's why it's taken so long. And then, of course, the AstraZeneca vaccine that's been used in Europe has not gained emergency use approval here yet. So really, we're, we're almost all focused on the two mRNA vaccines. And then there's uh, a small percent that have used the, the J&J adenoviral vaccine. So those are really the two constructs that are worth talking about, the mRNA and then the adenoviral. I guess just effective, the mRNA vaccines have higher efficacy. The safety concerns around these vaccines are almost zero. I mean, there, there's a few things to talk about, but they're very rare. And certainly are nowhere near the, the risk of getting COVID uh, or having a bad trip with COVID. So they're pretty remarkable in terms of how widely they've been employed around the world, uh, how effective they've been up front and even six, eight months out. Um, the efficacy remains quite high for most of, the, most of those vaccines. Uh, there is some decrease, of course, with a few of the variants that have uh, come forward, and that's what we're all you know, now focused on and worried about. Uh, and there's, you know, the debates about booster or no booster. And, you know, maybe there's subgroups that should definitely have a booster now, which I, Jim can talk about probably with his rituximab patients. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, there's a lot to still figure out. And, you know, can we give the vaccine with other vaccines? 
you know, when, when to give boosters in the future. I mean, I, I think there's little doubt we'll get them. I just don't know when, but it may be that there's certain subgroups of people that will, will get them uh, sooner than others. But I guess that would be my, my general overview of the, the vaccine situation. And the, with regard to the safety, Kevin, it, I think it harkens back again to this very delicate balance that we need to, to strike as physicians and respected advisors. And that is, we need to inform without terrifying. So we're culpable if we don't say, yes, you could have thrombosis with this. Yes, you could develop Guillain-Barre with this. Yes, your uveitis might flare after this. On the other hand, if we, you know, rattle off this long list of potential but extremely unlikely events, we may dissuade someone from getting the vaccination. Yeah. What evidence is out there about efficacy in patients that are immunosuppressed? Or is it still an evolving topic? Well, we talked about the big one, rituximab. And I personally have a couple of patients who have received rituximab, now have no detectable antibodies after two mRNA vaccines. And I'm fortunate I have Kevin. <laughs> so... Kevin at least can hold my hand and say, well, you know, maybe give them a third vaccine, do this. Maybe they're still immune. Maybe they have T-cell immunity. Maybe they have an amnestic response if they get exposed a third time. They're just unknowns. And Kevin was a pioneer in studying how methotrexate affected the response to influenza vaccine, which has been really important in the extrapolation now to, to COVID. And then the JAK inhibitors are the other huge category that probably affects the immune response. And I should shut up because Kevin knows so much more about this topic than I do. <laughs> well, I mean, that's nice of you to say. I, I only know what I don't know, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, Jim and I have worked on a lot of these issues, uh, both in studies and, and with individual patients. I think what you said, you summarized it well. But I mean, we we have to figure this out. I mean, we, we have vaccine data trickling out now from various, mostly small studies around the world, but but consistent with what Jim just told you, um, which are largely the things we expected based on our extrapolation with other vaccines. Diminishment with B-cell depletion therapy being you know potentially quite extraordinary depending on when the vaccine is given. Diminishment with methotrexate, diminishment with JAK inhibitors, uh, maybe even some diminishment with T TNF blockers. So, I mean, it, it is so far exactly how we would have guessed it looks like. And I should say a batacept as well. Um, there seems to be some lower responses there too. But but again, we have small numbers. We don't have like controlled trials where you're randomizing people to one strategy or another. Jeff Curtis and I are trying to do that trial where uh, we have contracts that are just sitting around being batted around by lawyers, I guess. I, I don't know. We can't we can't seem to start our study. I, I think we're going to end up having to, to do these studies with the booster dose that we envision everyone uh, being given in the future. But um, I, I think, you know, we, we need to figure out optimal ways to vaccinate people in terms of DMARDs. And I, I think some of those DMARDs you can probably hold, like Jim was alluding to, temporarily at the time of vaccination and probably will help you, but it'd be nice to study it actually to, to prove that and to, to find out the best way to do it. It's very analogous, right, 
to the strategy, let's not enroll pregnant women in a trial, let's not enroll children in a trial. And ironically, in trying to protect them, we <laughs> end up having no data as to the safety in those vulnerable populations. Yeah, it usually takes a long time to get it. Yeah. Now, Jim, I think a lot of us out in the UEITIS practicing community have been using the um, American College of Rheumatology guidance for how maybe we should be having people hold their immunosuppressants or in the case of like B-cell depletion therapy, trying to maybe obtain vaccination prior to institution of that. Were there any particular agents you maybe want to just comment on what you've been counseling with the timing for your patient population? And I guess any insights as to how often or how frequently we should be watching for those types of updates? Kevin's a co-author of that, Laura, and I think he's probably the, the best one to comment on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't a co-author, but I'm, I am on the ACR guideline committee and we, we, we can, we were too lazy to work on this during the holidays. So we, we convened a task force to, to do it for us. So that was led by my dear uh, friend and partner in crime, Jeff Curtis and, and several others. And so they did put together this guidance uh, very quickly and it, it has been updated a couple of times. And I would anticipate kind of updates every, you know, probably six to eight weeks as, as more data trickles out. But um, and, and again, it's it's largely what we were just talking about. It's it's it was an extrapolation based on all the data from other vaccines in this setting and really looking at how DMARDs have been shown to influence vaccine studies. And now a couple things to mention. A, pretty much all this has to do with immunogenicity of vaccines. We, we have very little to no data looking at efficacy of vaccination. And Jim alluded to that earlier, that, you know, just because you don't have a humoral response, or maybe because your humoral response is lower than what we would like, doesn't mean you're not protected. It doesn't mean your protection is less than, than other people. That's a whole separate question. Certainly with Retox, uh, we, we actually, there is data showing that the, the COVID vaccines despite patients having little or no humoral response, they do develop T-cell-based immunity. So, you know, it's a complicated area, but, but one, again, it, we, we draw a lot on immunogenicity studies because that's the easiest thing to measure, of course, and, and you have to have huge studies to measure efficacy. So um, there are caveats in terms of what, you know, what we can uh, draw from or conclude from those studies, but but I think there is some face validity to the idea that, well, if the person responds less uh, in terms of the immunogenicity of the vaccine, then probably their protection is not better. And it's either the same or it's probably less. Right. So that's how we've gone about it. And I think that makes sense. It's intuitive uh, and it's consistent with, I guess, life on this planet. You know, I will say that methotrexate and JAK inhibitors probably are, are pretty similar in terms of how they reduce vaccine responses, uh, B-cell depletion agents we all already measured are, are you know, overwhelmingly very powerful, at, at least at reducing humoral responses. Um, and, you know, TNF blockers, although they don't reduce responses that that much, quote unquote, they, they do. If you look at the data pretty much across the board with flu vaccine and pneumococcal vaccine and others, they reduce the quantitative numbers. You know, if you, if you want to measure geometric fold rise in antibody titer, for example. So, there is probably some reduction, and there is almost certainly some reduction in T-cell immunity, uh, which for some vaccines is more important than humoral immunity. So it really depends on which 
uh, vaccine you're talking about. But TNF blockers, I think, you know, they're a lot harder to stop than they are JAG inhibitor. One of the beauties of JAG inhibitors are you can turn them off and they're off, you know, in a few days. Much different situation than a TNF blocker where if you have to vaccinate someone, you can't really turn it off. You know, otherwise you're going to risk controlling the underlying disease, which is always, you know, Jim can comment on that. But that's that's always the uh, the, op- the alternative cost or the opportunity cost or however you want to say it that, you know, you, you can't turn these things off for very long. Otherwise, the patient's underlying disease flares, and then they don't respond well to their vaccine either because their RA is out of control. So we want to we want to try to modulate these things, uh, but you got to hit the sweet spot. And let's not forget prednisone, especially in the higher doses, I think certainly is a bad actor in terms of vaccine responsiveness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, low-dose prednisone, it doesn't have a whole lot of effect, you know, if you're talking doses five and below. But once you go above 10, you certainly start seeing some negative effects. So, You know, in, in our practice, a huge dilemma for us is how do we inform our patients? So do we send a letter to everyone? And with the information changing, are we certain that the letters delivered or, you know, if you're in Oregon and it's February, are they really at their home in Oregon or are they in Arizona or Southern California? And how do I deal now when a patient who's coming in every six months has been taking the methotrexate and didn't stop the methotrexate and I didn't say anything in advance about the methotrexate? I think that's, these are all really good points in terms of, you know, efficacy data. What about, Jim, for a patient would you say, like for safety data, for someone that's on an immunosuppressant, is their safety data any different than someone that wasn't on an immunosuppressant with regards to the vaccine? Not that I'm aware of, and, and Kevin may wish to comment, but I think the, the question is not whether it's safe, it's whether yeah. it's efficacious. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, in terms of safety, the only thing I can think of where there might be some differential is with regards to you know flare of underlying disease. I mean, clearly these vaccines are reactogenic. A lot of people feel, you know, flu-like reactions and other local or systemic reactions for 24 hours or so after the vaccine. The question with these vaccines and really any vaccine that comes to market is always, does it flare underlying disease? Does it cause uveitis flares? Well, I'm going to ask you guys that because you're you're the uveitis specialist. But does it cause RA flares? Does it do, you know, is lupus going to flare? So, you know, those are open questions still. We don't know. We we certainly have case reports of that happening. There's a few small case series uh, where, you know, a small percent of people flared. And and obviously, if you take them off their immune suppression, they're going to have a higher risk of flare. So, I mean, that, that's something that we plan to sort out in our own studies that I had mentioned before, as, as well as other people looking at that. So, Kevin, what do you think about popping an over-the-counter non-steroidal before the vaccine, which is exactly what I did until I heard some eminent talking head say, whatever you do, don't take that non-steroidal beforehand. Yeah, you know my story. I mean, I got gout the, 
<laughs> the day after my my first shot, you know, so I was popping a lot more than non-steroidals. Boy, that was a good example of, I think I had actually a little gout going in and then my innate immune system went wild with this vaccine. And of course, my gout just completely um, blew up, which I didn't know I had. But, you know, in retrospect, yes, my big toe did hurt a little bit the day before my vaccine. But, you know, I, I don't think non-steroidals have any sort of negative effect whatsoever. Uh, and that's from a variety of other studies that the only time that's kind of been shown is uh, really in young, young kids where they're, this is a primary vaccination, which I guess you could say with COVID, it is also a primary vaccination if you haven't been exposed to it before, but it's only been shown in really, really young kids, um, like, you know, infants. So I, I don't think that's an issue. I mean, it, it's hard to believe that ibuprofen is an issue, um, with vaccine responsiveness and, uh, I don't know, an IL-6 drug isn't or a TNF blocker isn't, you know, so I, I don't, I don't, I think it was the right thing to do, Jim. You should have taken more insights. <laughs> if a practitioner does feel like a patient's developed a de novo uveitis or uveitis flare after having a vaccine, where should they be reporting this? To Jim. <laughs> <laughs> to Kevin. <laughs> Is this something that's going in the the VARES system or? You know, actually, I was helping a colleague look through VARES the other day. We were looking for corneal graft rejections after vaccination in, in people who had cornea transplants. So that kind of stuff is going into VARES. It's definitely a place to report it. It's a place to look if you're curious. Kevin, can you just briefly tell, since not maybe everyone that's listening has had to report to that before, what, what VARES is? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the FDA MedWatch system for adverse drug reactions. It's the same thing, you know, so it's, it's basically the public database that, that FDA runs. And if you have a patient who has a reaction to a vaccine that, you know, you perceive as related or even unrelated, you can report it. So you just, there's a link on that. Maybe you guys can give your listeners the link later or something. I don't have it off the top of my head, but you know, you can just Google it and it'll come up and then you can uh, report it. You know, CDC also has, of course, a tracking tool that's separate with the COVID vaccines, uh, that's downloadable, that patients can report, doctors can report. Jim, I thought one of your protégés was doing a survey of uveitis specialists around the world looking for these reports too. So that would be another place to report. So Yeah. I heard a sufficient number of anecdotes to believe it, but the other complexity is a lot of people are altering their medications in advance of the vaccine. So that does add to the interpretation of the data. Yeah. I think we'd like to finish up with kind of a discussion just about how you guys are counseling people now in the moment. Um, and I guess my first question is, for those of your, of your patients that are immunosuppressed but have received their complete vaccination series, what are you counseling them about social distancing measures, masking measures, especially as more and more have to go back into the workplace and more into the general public? Well, I think that unless they're taking a rituximab or a JAK inhibitor, I'm assuming that they're immune. And I've assumed that perhaps wrongly, even if they had taken methotrexate after the vaccine. But in the case of rituximab, uh, although I think it's against the official recommendations, it's the Winthrop recommendation to check for antibody. I've recommended a third vaccine in that setting. And again, I don't think we know anything officially, 
but it makes it's heuristic to me to say, hey, you had two Pfizer vaccines, get a J&J or, you know, try something a, a little bit different. It can't hurt. And um, it, it might be the trick. Who knows? But again, it, it's not a data driven recommendation. I'd add to that by saying I totally agree. I, I get asked, as does Jim, I'm sure, about 25 times a day about these individual cases by email or phone that, you know, I've actually my patient, they're on oculizumab or tuxmab, then should I check their antibody response? Or, or I checked it and it was nothing, you know, what should I do? So, I mean, I, I've kind of come to the position after, I guess, being beaten down by email <laughs> that, that I can't just keep telling these people, don't do anything about it. I think I am totally on board with, I, I do not think we should be checking people's titers after their vaccination. Um, we don't know what to make of the result. I don't know what low is. I don't know what high is. I don't know what the immune correlates of protection are for the vaccine. And until we know some of those things, it just doesn't make sense to check them. However, I, I've decided, you know, if you have a patient on MMF or B-cell depletion therapy, those would be my two that I would pick based on transplant data and, and some of the other data that, you know, a good percentage of those people seem to have zero antibody response. And, you know, in some cases, the majority of the people, and even with the third shot, a strong majority will still retain no antibody response. So, um, you know, I, it's that group of people, I typically respond back to, to, you know, the consult by saying, well, I don't know, I'd probably check them and, and see, and if they've got nothing, I consider a third shot, but you know, when to do it and how to do it. I mean, for me with B cell depletion agents, it, it's easy. Like I, my, my belief is it's really not worth vaccinating them if it's been within three months of their last shot. And if I'm going to give them another booster, I would wait until they're at least about six months out from their last uh, rituximab and, and then and then wait to give them the rituximab at least two more weeks after uh, you've given them that booster. So so if you're going to give a third shot, it makes sense to me with the B-cell depletion agency that you ought to just wait at least until you're as far away from their last rituximab as possible to give it. And, and whether you give the, you know, the same vaccine or a different one, I mean, I like Jim's idea. Um, I just looked up what heuristic means. I completely agree. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that's I think that's good. I mean, there's data in in general populations that say that that's fine to do in terms of the immune response. You get a robust immune response that's equal or greater than if you're using you know the same vaccine to boost. Um, you know, so I, I think that's fine to do. I don't know that it makes a difference ultimately, but I, I think it's fine. I agree with Kevin, but the other side of the coin is that the longer we delay the shot, the longer the patient's at risk. And so as almost everything in life, it's a balance and what's to gain and what's to lose. So Jim, this kind of ties into our last question, which is, so for you have your uveitis patient in clinic and for some reason they're vaccine hesitant, whether they're concerned about the possibility of it flaring up their disease, or they're concerned about something relating to their immunosuppression. What is your general spiel um, to a vaccine-hesitant uveitis patient? <laughs> I suppose if I were a saint, I would allot at least thirty minutes to explore the the mechanism of the thinking. Um, but frankly, you know, I, I haven't had great success in changing major belief systems. So. If I get a sense that a patient is on the fence and 
being informed would really sway them, I will spend time. But And it's a bias and it's assumption, it's prejudicial, but I also get this sense from body language and certain way that people respond that it's it's futile to try to, you know, argue with them. And it just um, fractures my relationship with the patient, actually. Yeah, I, I, I agree in many ways. I mean, obviously, as an ID person, we we've been dealing with vaccine hesitancy for years and we've spent a lot of time on it. And it doesn't matter if I schedule 30 minutes or an hour, Jim. Yeah, it, the result tends to be the same. But, um, you know, I. Look, I mean, it's like trying to get someone who's a smoker to quit smoking, right? I mean, you, you should mention it. You should try to address it, but there's only so much you can do about it. Um, and obviously mentioning it and, and you know, seeing if there's anything you can do about it shows that you care and that's what you should do. Um, you know, I I think, you know, we're reaching about 70% of the country being vaccinated. You know, I know here in Oregon we're at 70%. So, I don't know how much better you're going to do. I mean, particularly when you look at other vaccine rates, you know, and, and I don't know that we need to do that much better. I mean, I, I guess my my thing I would close with would be kind of going back to your last question that, you know, there are some people that probably have had suboptimal vaccine responses. Um, and you're reading in the paper about people who had optimal vaccine responses yet still are infected, although very few of those people end up with severe disease. But, but some do. And, you know, some of them have died. So the vaccines are, are not completely protective, although they're very highly protective. And, you know, that includes the Delta variant, which there might be some diminishment with time with the, you know, at least with the Pfizer vaccine, probably with the J&J vaccine, uh, the Moderna we don't know about. But I think probably there's going to be diminishment with time with the number of variants. You know, the farther you're out, your immunity will wane and uh, at some point, you, you probably will need a booster. But but for those individuals that you guys take care of and that we're really talking about in this podcast, I mean, you know, my advice is, A, hang out with vaccinated people. <laughs> um, B, you know, tell your kids that they aren't going to get your inheritance until they get themselves <laughs> vaccinated. Um, you know, and C, you know, you may still want to wear a mask in a lot of situations. You know, if I was on Rituximab, I would, I would probably be just wearing a mask like I was six months ago. I'm not sure I'd feel that much different about the steps I would want to take to protect myself. So, you know, and I think until we, we have some more answers about the protectedness of the vaccine and the immune correlates of protection and, and also until the incidence is lower, in certain parts of the country, uh, obviously we have all these, you know, pockets now, particularly unvaccinated areas, uh, almost exclusively unvaccinated areas, where the Delta variant is is starting to rip through. So, um, so, so you know, pick where you're going wisely, I guess, and and try to take the precautions that you've been taking if if you're someone who's at higher risk. So. Well, before we take a moment to thank our guests, I just wanted to remind our audience that we're recording this here in July 2021, and this is a rapidly changing topic. You can get your most up-to-date information from the CDC website, as also from rheumatology.org, which has some of those American College of Rheumatology immunosuppression schedule modulations that we're currently following for administration of the COVID-19 vaccinations. And then finally, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System is online at vaers.hhs.gov as one forum where you could share if you do have patients that have developed uveitis or have uveitis flare after receiving a vaccination. 
Awesome. Well, Jim and Kevin, thank you guys so much for joining us. This was extremely, extremely helpful. Actually, thank you, Laura. Thank you. And Kevin, always a pleasure. Yeah, it was fun. Nice to see you guys. Cheers. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Check us out at uvispodcast.com, and we'll talk to you next time. Take care of yourselves. Have a good summer.